All right, we are on the last section of the Apostles' Creed. It hasn't been that long a series, really. It's just because we've had lots of guests in between. Haven't our guests these last few weeks been fantastic? Don't you think so? Great speakers. I think they've been good anyway. I know you don't like them as much as me, but that's the way it goes. And so we're on this last section. I, and we're going to repeat the creed at the end of this preach, okay? So we won't do the beginning. I'll just read to you the last line. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. This subversive statement of faith that roots us in history, locates us in orthodoxy, and separates us from the normative narrative of the 21st century. In other words, we are part of a great big story, the story of redemption, and the creed beautifully lays out this big story. And we, guys, we get to play a part in God's big story. That's why we do the likes of the Apostles' Creed. We are a people of history. We are a people of purpose right now. And we are a people of promise. And so the creed began with this statement. We believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. So it began with a statement about history. There is a starting point. We believe in a creator God. So it begins with a statement of a beginning, the creation by Father God, and it ends here with a statement about there being no end. We believe in the everlasting life. Of course, the two statements, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the everlasting life, are one sentence. They are part of the same description. And a few weeks ago, Cy Beaumont did a superb preach about the resurrection body. He described to us what this resurrection body will entail. We saw, and this is important, that we will not be disembodied spirits that float about in eternal nothingness. When we go into eternity, either when we die or when Jesus returns, we do not become angels. Hello? because that theology gets out there a little bit. We don't become angels. Guys, we are better than the angels. The angels, it says in the Bible, look into the things of the redeemed and long to experience what we experience. We are sons, if you're a Christian, we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We have an eternal future secured for us in Jesus Christ and the benefits and the inheritance are more than any angel ever gets. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're better than an angel. Was that embarrassing for some of you? I'm sorry. There is a day, this is the words of a song, that all creation's waiting for. Of course, the words of that song, if you know it, we're not going to sing it, but are from a book in the Bible, Romans 8, where it says this. I put this in your outline notes. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope, everyone say hope. Hope. Hope that the creation itself will be liberated from all its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. See, there was a starting point to history, but there will be an end point to history. And that end point to history is when Jesus Christ returns. We believe He's coming back. And when He returns, He, all simultaneously, all in the twinkling of an eye, He will judge the living and the dead. He will judge them righteously. His judgment will be just. His judgment will be swift. There'll be no need for an appeal. There'll be no need for a jury because the righteous one, the only righteous one, the perfect one will do what is right and judge all men and women throughout history. He knows where they will go. There will be the just and the unjust. There'll be sheep and the goats. He knows. And simultaneously to all this, the dead in Christ, and this is what Sai spoke to us about a few weeks ago, the dead in Christ. So if I die before Jesus returns, and I might not, and you might not, if I die and I'll be buried or cremated, I don't mind if it's cremation, my body that's gone into the ground or into the dust will be joined with my spirit that has already gone ahead into heaven. And I will, and you will meet him in the air. Anyone looking forward to this day? Just me. We're going to meet him in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us that are still alive, we'll then join those saints that are meet him in the air. And together, we will welcome the return of Jesus Christ. And it's at that point, we get our new resurrection bodies. Not disembodied souls, but new bodies, changed bodies, spiritual bodies, unlike anything we can imagine, but it's still fun to try. (laughs) Hello. Our bodies will not be subject to pain. Our bodies, and let's be clear, their bodies, they're physical. They can eat and drink and enjoy. Our bodies will not be subject to sin or to aging or to aches or to pains or to any of the limitations we now have. Did I hear a hallelujah? I was reading a book yesterday, listening to my vinyl records. I've really gone retro. And I love them. And I read this. I was reading this book again. This is a brilliant book. John Ortberg, Who is Jesus? This is a brilliant book. And he finished the book with this. He says, I think of the change Jesus brought to our world around hope and I think about two tombstones. One of them marks the resting place of Mel Blanc, the famous voice of countless characters in Looney Tunes. Remember him? Looney Tunes cartoons. In accordance with his instructions, his family is inscribed as his final epitaph, the words that he had said to end a thousand cartoons. So this was on his tomb. This was it. That's all, folks. 
He said then, he went on to say, the other tombstone is described by Philip Yancey. It marks the grave of a friend's grandma who lies buried under an ancient oak tree in the cemetery of an Episcopal church in rural Louisiana. In accordance with the grandmother's instructions, only one word is inscribed on the tombstone. This is it. Waiting. (laughs) Waiting. Yes, her spirit is in heaven. She's free. But one day the return of Jesus, she's waiting for that great trumpet blast from heaven. Let's all do a trumpet blast together. Just like that, that's the way it'll be. And when the trumpet blast goes, I'm sure you'll all be involved. Then, waiting, our bodies will be joined with our spirits. And we begin in the new creation. Eternity. So the creed, after the pronouncement that we believe in the resurrected body, then tells us this body will spend eternity, everlasting life in the presence of God. Now some think that this little end phrase, the everlasting life, was added to the creed at a later stage because there was some confusion and some heresy around the issue of resuscitation or resurrection. In fact, some commentaries say the word is so similar, they use the same word for resurrection or resuscitation. And so this was added so as that there would be no confusion. When Jesus returns and we enter into the eternal state, it's not resuscitation we will experience. If it's resuscitation, we get the same body that we've had before. If it's resurrection, we get a glorious, I just love that word, a glorious new body. So it's not resuscitation, it's resurrection. And some believe that was added so as that we know there's something glorious and immortal and wonderful beyond what words can really describe of this body that we're going to get. We do have instances in the Bible, particularly one where there was a man who was resuscitated, Lazarus. If you don't know the story, just quickly, he was one of Jesus' best friends, the brother of Mary and Martha. And he died, but Jesus took three or four days to get there. But when he did get there, he actually spoke to the grave. He names the one he wants to come out, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't just say come forth because there may have been many others that came out at the same time, but he just said Lazarus' name and he was resuscitated. Guess what? Lazarus, this is, I think this is a real bummer. Lazarus had to die again one day. I mean, you know, he's been dead for four days. He comes back to life. He's not, res- it's, it's the same body, but he's going to have to die again. Presumably it was, he died again post Jesus going to heaven. So I wonder whether when he came to the second time to die, whether he prayed before he went, Jesus, let me stay this time. Or whether he went into heaven and Jesus plays a trick with him and says, I'm going to send you back again. And he says, Jesus, I've signed a DNR. Please do not resuscitate. I want to enjoy the resurrection. Please. What a bummer. He had to die again. 
When we get our resurrection bodies, we will not have to die again. It will not be the same as these bodies. It will be different. And we will live in this eternal state forever. The question that comes to me then about the eternal condition, eternity, the everlasting life, the question that come to me was, was simply this. What will everlasting life be like and maybe more specifically, what will we do? A skeptic, some of you have heard of this individual, Bertrand Russell, said the worst thing he could think of was an eternity that did not end because it would be incredibly boring, his quote. I have some sympathy with that. If it's going to be boring. I'm not sure I want an eternity that's boring to last forever, do you? George Bernard Shaw wrote in 1910, speaking of heaven, he said, heaven as conventionally conceived is a place, in his opinion, so inane, so dull, so useless, so miserable that nobody has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven, though plenty of people have described a day at the seaside. Someone said to me, at the end of the Hillsong Conference, it was maybe a glimpse of heaven. Guys, you should all go to the Hillsong Conference, but please, if that's heaven, get me out of here now. <laughs> it was great. It was brilliant. Now, what we think is, because we, we like singing songs, don't we? And we like Hillsong songs, don't we? Because they're brilliant. They're the best in the world, in my humble opinion, which I happen to think is correct. I love them. But if that's what heaven's going to be like, I don't want to go. I love Hillsong songs, but I don't want to sing all their songs forever and eternity because I love going, but I'm glad when it's over as well. Hello? Because it might include singing some songs, but it's more than singing songs. And then I've heard in the past, you know, people say, let's have fellowship because this is what it'll be like in heaven. Really? Now, we try and serve good coffee, but we don't use that word fellowship. It's about community very often. They used to say in the church I grew up in, and we had awful coffee and tea afterwards in a styrofoam cup. And I used to think, if that's heaven, I don't want to go. We even had non-alcoholic, as we do here, wine. And they used to say there'd be wine in heaven. And some said there'd be non-alcoholic. Why? We're going to have a new body that can enjoy all the benefits. Surely the eternal state is better than that. You with me? I know some of you feel I've preached heresy right now, especially knocking Hillsong Conference. It's great. All go. All go. Please book in. You'll love it. It's fantastic teaching. But my point is this. We say such things because it's really hard to communicate concepts of eternity and how good it will be. We can only understand according to the limits of our own experience and language. We don't really have the words to describe the ecstasy, the beauty and the reality of eternity. It's so much better than the best we have currently experienced. Now, if you want some biblical support for that, the Apostle Paul says exactly that. In 1 and 2 Corinthians rather 12 verse 1 to 4, we won't read it for the sake of time, but he talks about a man he knows, which is a very strange way of him saying me. Not me, himself. He said, and you of a man who went to heaven. 
And it, then he goes on to say, the things he saw, a man can't articulate. He says he's taken up to heaven, but he can't find words to describe what he saw. So no book, no global tour, no teaching series. He just goes to heaven and this is what he says. He, speaking of the man himself, he had inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Inexpressible simply means without words. The Apostle Paul, who seems to be able to say some things pretty succinctly in the Bible, himself says, I can't find the words to describe it. Goes on to say, in another chapter, 1, 1 Corinthians, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And he relates it to heaven and eternity. Then he adds, unless the spirit has revealed. But we know whatever we see, even in this age, by the Holy Spirit's power is still, no matter what we see, it's still but a poor reflection of all it's going to be. So just remember that as we try to put a few words around it. First thing I want to say about eternity is this. Eternity is located in a place. In other words, it's for real. If we had time today, and I know I won't, but I would love to read the whole of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Because if you want a picture, the best picture in the Bible of what this new age, this new creation reality will be like, it's Revelation 21 and 22. But it starts with this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So eternity is located not in heaven alone, but in earth and heaven that are fused into one of the return of Jesus. So it's a new heaven and a new earth. We tend to think of heaven, if I can use that word, and actually I think heaven is best used to describe the place where believers are now in their spiritual state, disconnected from the new body. But let's just use heaven for now in this way. Heaven in the Bible, the way we see it, particularly in the New Testament, we tend to think of it as up there, don't we? Which is understandable. Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended into heaven. And it says that in the same way that you've seen him go, so he will return. So it, it seems like an up and down. That's why we do it. When you read of the parable of the rich man in hell, it says he looks up and sees Abraham and Lazarus in heaven. So it, that language is, hell sounds like it's down below and hell sounds like it's up above. Of course, that's hard for us to relate to, especially when we've penetrated into the heavens, if we want to call space and the universe that. The first Russian cosmonauts, when they went into space, they famously mocked that God was not there. He's nowhere to be seen. So we have this up and down understanding of heaven and hell. But I think the reality is, for the people of that time, maybe for us too to some extent, 
That was just a way to try and imagine the unimaginable. It was just wording around another sphere. Well, that sphere of heaven and earth at the return of Jesus is going to be broken and there's going to be one heaven and earth new. Now, I'm going to tread into territory which I have little. Actually, let me correct that. I have no understanding of whatsoever. But even a simple Google search today reveals that in the 21st century, there are a lot of intelligent people who believe in the possibilities of a parallel universe. There are those who believe in alternative realities. And guess what? It's no longer just Star Trek anymore or sci-fi. They reckon, I don't know this for a fact, don't know anyone who knows him if you can verify this, but they reckon that Stephen Hawking was apparently investigating through a, a physicist as a, a mathematician kind of approach the possibilities before his death of alternative universes, parallel universes. Maybe there is. If there is, maybe that's the heavenlies. Maybe that's what's going to become the new heaven and the new earth, where it all gets fused together. I had a, a friend many years ago who was into UFOs. And I, I used to say to him, you know, every kneel bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said to me one day, what if there is a parallel universe? And what if they don't have legs like us? What a ridiculous question. <laughs> I remember saying to him, well, whatever they've got as walking implements... They're going to bow one day to the name of Jesus. Because if there is an alternative universe, if there is a parallel, guess what? Their saviour, because everyone needs a saviour, is called Jesus. So every knee will bow, and so will every other thing that is a walking implement in the name of Jesus. Because there's a new day where everyone will see him for who he is. So my point is simply this. Eternity is for real, and heaven runs concurrently with human history. That's why you get people in the Bible that get a vision of heaven. Stephen, when he was stoned, first sermon he ever preached, they stoned him. Paul gets a vision of the heavenlies. And of course, John, the apostle in the book of Revelation, he goes in and sees the heavenlies and what's going on concurrently. He's outside of time with what's happening in history for us, planet Earth. And one day the two will be fused together. I text my friend, uh, Colin, some of you have heard me speak about him. I meant to bring my phone up, I won't bother, this week to say, you know when your granddad was dying, didn't he have a vision? And he texts back to me, he said, yeah, my granddad was dying. As he did, he, he saw Jesus in heaven and that he prepared a place for him. So about your mom, he said, no, my mom didn't, but I did. He said, I saw Jesus holding my mom's hand walking into heaven as she was about to die. And I walked into the hospital and they said, she's probably going to die. And I just felt at peace because I knew there was a heaven for her. I'll be honest with you. Can, can I be honest? When my dad was dying, I prayed that he'd have a vision. I've been reading just that week about another guy who had died and come back to life. And when he died, this other guy, he'd lay on the grass in heaven because it's real, it's physical. And he said he saw blades of glass 
that we're all declaring glory to God. Even the blades of grass. I believe it. And I prayed, God, give my dad such a vision. I remember thinking, you know why I prayed that? I wanted him to be comforted because he was scared as he was passing. But I really wanted me to be comforted as well. Because even when you believe this stuff, we still need to remind one another. And we still need to read those scriptures. And we need to talk about it. Guys, can you hear me? Can we, can we talk about the new heaven, the new creation reality? I know I'm conflating a little bit death and we go to heaven and then the new age, but let's talk about death as well. Some people pray for some people to be healed and honestly, it's time for them to go. I pray regularly for my mum to go to heaven. She's 94, 95 next week. It's her time next week, next year. It's her time. Heaven's going to be much better for her. Hello? Someone once described death as the new pornography. In the, it, pornography used to be a lot more hidden in society. It's now very easily accessible. You can see it. And really, some stuff that isn't classed as porn now really is porn that we get bombarded with. Someone described it as a new pornography. It's in our face. We talk about it. We're not, someone said, any men's conference you go to, is one thing, ladies, we, they talk about is porn. Not in a right way, but in a negative way. It's out there. But how often do we talk about death? It's kind of hidden. Don't mention it. We're all going to die. Hey, I went to church today and found out we're all going to die. <laughs> Unless Jesus returns first. Yes. And that's possible in my age. When I was with my mum last year, she's now in a nursing home. I, and I always feel a little bit guilty when I share this kind of stuff. I always sound like I'm a hero. I'm no hero because my sister's the hero in looking after my mum. I just want to say that. I just visit every now and again and then I leave. So I feel a little bit guilty that I can't be with her as much with our busy world. But when I sat with her last year before she went into the home, she was a little bit more... Compass Mentors. She also was getting scared. And as she's asleep and I'm sitting there in the lounge, I just wrote these words. These, it's, it's kind of a poem, but you know what? It's not going to win any Pulitzer Prize. But these are some things that I wrote. It's entitled, I Wanted to Say. I'm sitting with my mum. We're not talking or laughing with fun. She's deeply asleep on the chair, waking only to sigh with despair. You in pain, I inquire. On my side, she replies, but can't open her eyes. She wakes a while later with a start, says some words that pull on my heart. What's going to happen to me? She inquires. I know what she fears, but whilst I'm fighting the tears, I say, nothing today, it's soon time for tea. Lampot. Or shepherd's pie. But she meant, what's next when I die? I wanted to say something like, God's got you, mom, you can rest. Or next is a heaven beyond what we dream. A place that is perfect. No pain and no screams. I wanted to say, do not fear. God in heaven will always be near. Next is a place he's prepared with dad and with Emma, your wonderful mum. But I just said some words 
of distraction. About shepherds and pies if they bring satisfaction. Was I right? Was I wrong? I don't know. I just wanted the best for my mum. Dementia has clouded this strong little woman. I'm doing for her what she did for me. I'm grateful and guilty. Sorry, sad, glad. For the memories, the sacrifice she's given me. For the times when she said, what do you want for tea? Were they words to distract from the fears that I had? I'll never know. Because no longer deep talking, just sleeping and waiting. What would you like for tea? Let's talk about it. Let's not be afraid of it. I'm I'm looking you in the eye as I say this. Because whilst on sabbatical, whatever it was that changed in our world, I had an attack of fear of death. We happened to be staying with Jeff and Kay Lucas, so that was a real help. I don't know whether it was jet lag. I don't know whether it was not having any borders in my life. But I fear gripped my heart. I've, some things were happening physically. Again, it was travel. I don't know. They passed. And so in my mind, I wrote this story. I was going to be dead in two days. And uh, I shared these things with Jeff over a meal and, and Kay. And they prayed for me one night. about you talk to someone about it heaven is for real eternity is for real yeah it is and if fear tries to fear has been my biggest enemy all of my life but I've won I've won and so can you so can you So what are we going to do there? Three things. In this eternal state. Not in the disembodied state, but in the new creation. Three things. And if I can recommend a couple of books to you, because I can't say it all. If you're going to buy just one book about the end times that makes sense and about eternity, buy this one. And the Lamb wins. Why the end of the world is really good news. Simon Ponsonby. Great book. Great book. That's the one you're going to buy, buy that one. If you want to buy another one, buy a pastor in our own city here. Graham Benyon, Last Things First, Living in the Light of the Future. Another good book, Last Things First. But the Lamb wins, wins. And in that book, Simon Ponsonby does a, a great job and he points out that Millard Erickson, an American theologian, points out that we'll do three things in the age to come. We will rest, we will worship, and we will serve. They're the gaps that are in your notes. Rest, worship, serve. Let me say this quickly. God has built rest into creation. He didn't create the earth in seven days, if you believe in the literal 24-hour periods. He did it in six. And on the seventh, He rested. And it doesn't matter whether you read that in another way. It's all fine. God's a God who built rest into creation. Even into the agricultural cycle, God built rest every seven years. One field, a field to remain fallow. It just works. He promised the Israelites that when they entered into the land that was promised, 
They would find rest from slavery. They'd enjoy peace and joy and prosperity. Every 50th year that was never actually practiced in Israel, they declared the year of Jubilee, a year when debts were forgiven. And God instructed them to have a year where slaves were declared free. And then Jesus comes. Jesus says this. Oh, can I say this to you like Jesus said? Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. That's the rest He promises. I'll give you rest. He offers rest to all who believe in Him. Heaven is an eternal city of rest. And when we get there, the need to work, to live, and the need to work in order to fight the decay that is in our world that we read about in the book of Romans, it will have stopped. It doesn't mean there won't be work, but it won't be meaningless work. And I know lots of us are engaged in work that isn't meaningless because we've already entered into the kingdom. So I'm not saying our work is meaningless, but it won't be in any frustration. It won't be with a tiredness. It will be work that's bringing order as God intended. Can I just say this to us, to, to apply that into the now? Sabbath still applies, I believe, as a principle. It doesn't have to be a Saturday or a Sunday or a Friday night, but we all need a day and seasons of rest. Now, don't take that wrong as though that means you just lie on your couch and you eat crisps and drink Coke and, and bulge on Netflix. That is not necessarily rest. How many of you here find it restful to go into the countryside and go for a walk? How many of you chatted after that walk, but somehow you rested? Because it was never meant to be a lazy day. It was meant to be a full day. A full day of that which restores your soul and a full day of enabling you to come closer to God. That could be having a meal with family. That could be watching a little bit of Netflix. I don't know. But it's something that restores your soul, that rests you in order to bring you closer to God. Because the essence of Sabbath was that you rest from your own work. Not that you rest from work per se, because you can worship God and it can be very active and engaging because the whole focus of, of Sabbath was this. Rest from your own work. In other words, trust God that in the six days that you work, hear that, six, on the seventh day, you worship God and get close to Him, which keeps you going close to Him for the rest of the week. Because I think some of the, the, the stuff we hear about Sabbath out there is about laziness. No, 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 no. It's about closeness to God. It's about worship of God. The primary activity to engage in on Sabbath was worship. Hello? So you can worship here. By the way, I'm earning a living right now. This is my job. <laughs> Smile at me. Go, really? Yeah, this is my job. But there's, no, there's a few others that this is their job as well. But for others of you, you're volunteering as part of your Sabbath. It's part of your worship. AV isn't just Tim. Tim. You are not just hearing the sound, you're worshipping God. And he never came up here once and sang in a microphone, for which we all thank God for. But he's doing a great job in making sure we can all hear it. That is worship. And he might be tired at the end of the day, but I think it could be restful as well because it's restored his soul. Because when he sees us all engaging, it thrills him. And I could go on in different examples, welcoming people. When you serve, don't think by serving, I'm not having a Sabbath. Yes, you are. But in your Sabbath, you're doing something else. I've got minus five minutes left. Second thing is this. Come, team, come up, come up, save me. 
Second thing is this, worship. Whenever you get a glimpse of heaven, there's always worship going on. And I don't believe it's going to be eternal song singing. There will be some songs that are sung, but there's work to be done as well, which is worship. This is what Jonathan Edwards wrote in a sermon, wrote, praise one of the chief employments of heaven. When they behold the glorious power of God, they cannot but praise that power. Listen, worship is not about music. Worship is about revelation. And when you see who God is, you can't help but go, hallelujah, or something likely like that. It's not about the style of music. It's about the God you worship. I can worship God anywhere, can't you? In any song. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. We sang it today. Feels like an old hymn to us nowadays. But it's great to sing. I know, I know I get warm fuzzies and nostalgia feeling all of that, but it's about who Jesus is. Let me move on. When they behold the glorious power of God, they cannot but praise that power. When they see God's wisdom that is so wonderful and infinitely beyond all created wisdom, they cannot but continually praise that wisdom, cannot help but continually praise that wisdom. When they view the infinitely pure and lovely holiness of God, whereby the heavens themselves are not pure in comparison with Him, how can they avoid with an exalted heart to praise that beauty of the divine nature? When they see the infinite grace of God and see what a boundless ocean of mercy and love He is, how can they but celebrate the grace with the highest praise? In other words, when you see God, you worship. And when we get to the age to come, we are face to face, guys. It says in Revelation 21 that His name is written on our foreheads, our name and His name are written on our foreheads. He knows us. We're intimate and we can't help but worship. And then the final thing is this service. Revelation 23 says this, 22.3 says this, His servants will serve Him. Again, not in the drudgery that we experience sometimes in service here, but in a perfect place with perfect people and a perfect God. And if you look at those verses that I put in your notes, the Bible reveals that that work is going to be about government, about bringing government over cities. I've already told you, if there's a Liverpool in the new heaven and earth, Lord, give me Liverpool. Hello. I want to rule over Liverpool. That chaotic city as it was in my younger days. It's had a lot of European influx of money the last few years and it looks better than it ever has. But it'll be better again if those places exist in the age to come. God, give me Liverpool. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It'll be about rule. So what do we do while we wait? How about this? We serve, we worship, we rest. We bring that future into today because we're kingdom people. We're kingdom people. We're people, we're not new age people, we're people of the new age. We're people of the future. And we bring that future with our rest, with our worship, with our service into today we're the people of God, the redeemed, and we've got a glorious future.